Welcome one and all to a new episode of my RPG podcast. Today's guest is Chris from Atlanta D&D. Chris and I talk about the Atlanta geek scene as well as the RPG scene, running pub crawls for D&D groups, and what it took from him to get into RPGs and eventually being a community manager slash organizer for the Atlanta D&D events. I hope you enjoy. Welcome one and all to a new episode of my RPG podcast. Today I have Chris from the Atlanta D&D group. Chris, will you please introduce yourself? Hi guys, I'm Chris Stelkup. I'm one of the organizers and hosts for ATL D&D's events uh, here in Atlanta. Yeah, I actually had the opportunity to try for the first time a couple of weeks back an ATL D&D event in my local community, which was a lot of fun. And I really enjoyed my time there, especially the message and kind of the uh, mission behind the group. So I wanted to get Chris on here, as well as Nikki, if you guys listened to the episode before this, to kind of talk about what it is like to do all that. But before we jump into any of that, Chris, real quick, what's your intro to D&D? How did you get into it? So uh, I was still in college at the time. I was a I was a late arrival to D and Five E had just come out, and a bunch of friends were like, "Hey, you want to try D and D?" And uh, literally from there, it was a slow descent into crippling addiction. That's a good way to put it—a crippling addiction. So, did you end up having the the dice addiction? A lot of people also fall into as well. Like, do you have mounds of dice nearby? I'm I'm currently in recovery. Uh, so basically what I'm trying to do right now is like wean myself off the massive mountains of dice and just pick like three sets of real solid ones. Like I'm partial to metal dice because like those feel like something is important and like something important is happening when you roll. I know for people who are big dice enthusiasts, there's a lot of like spirituality ritualism to where like sometimes they like to pre-roll their dice, see which were hot the day or the cold that day, and then kind of exclude the ones that they don't want. Or they, like in your case, some people like, you know, big obnoxiously large dice or metal dice because they feel like it has more impact. Oh, yeah. yeah uh, so I have a friend who bathes her dice in moonlight. Uh, I have pre-roller friends. I personally just choose to treat my uh, dice with like respect and love. And hopefully if I love them, they'll love me back. That's a good way to start a relationship. So you're getting to the D&D through 5e. Was it just friends saying like, hey, you want to check this out? Was there like an impetus because of a, a stream show or something like that? Uh, no, it was literally uh, it was when 5e came out. So uh, I think it was like five or six years ago. It's been a while. God. Um, but yeah, when 5e came out, there was sort of a resurgence and some friends were like, hey, this came out. Do it with us. And I went, OK. And what was your first character like? Um, I was, uh, I'm a theater kid, so I'm all over the place. I tend to be a little chaotic. I can be a little bit of a shitty player. I can be honest. Uh, his name was Bronze Johnson. He was a bronze dragonborn and he acted like someone who was named Bronze Johnson would act. He was just all in all the time. Just a silly goo. Hmm. So would you say that being a theater kid made it easy for you to transition? Because I do find out there's a lot of like actors, theater, you know, either comedy, improv that is kind of associated with playing D&D. So people with a background like that kind of pick it up really quickly. It 
it definitely makes a certain style of play easier. Um, I don't think it necessarily makes getting into like role playing games easier because like there are a lot of like uh, introverted people who find their way in just fine. Uh, so I, I tend to think that yeah, if if you're gonna get drunk and pretend to be a wizard, that kind of uh, theater background lends itself well to that. So when you're playing your first games, how quickly does it take for you to become uh, proficient and feel like, okay, I kind of get this down enough to run your own games? Uh, me personally or just in general? Uh, either or. We can kind of tangent off if you want to as well. Uh, well, for me, it took me a while to dip my toes into the uh, DM side of things just because like, I'm real, real fucking lazy. Uh, that's just sort of how I roll. But... Um, once I, I started doing it, it was a, a quick slope. It's a lot easier to pick up than most people think. Um, I think it, in more general terms, it tends to be uh, like people are really, really nervous to DM the first time. Like they're like, how do I tell a story that has to change? Um, and to for those people, they're always astounded by how easy it is once you're in the chair. So I would say it's it's just hurdle yeah and i think a lot of also the stress that comes from first time dms or aspirant aspirant uh, dms is the fact that they have to they tend to think that they have to understand all the books and context and rulings and etc etc when in vast majority of games i've run into very rarely do you end up having to pull from page 197 of the player's handbook a lot of the time you can kind of just wave it as to that makes sense in you know the context yeah, and uh, like it's it's more looking for stuff that's fun for you. So like half the time these days, because uh, I improv all my games, I just make up a monster on the spot, you know, like whatever villain and like, okay, so they're level three. All right, you know what? He's got three attacks and this much health and AC this. And also he can do a weird thing with that kooky eye he's got. And you can just kind of improv it uh, if you have a little more experience under your belt doesn't take that much effort true and uh you you'll find very very quickly also like that the impetus on fun or your characters uh, and your players having a good time is probably way more important than any sort of technical thing and even coming down to the rules there's more of a suggestion than a hard a grid guideline to to rule the game by yeah like rule of cool always applies so you're getting into D&D, you're finding the time to start DMing for yourself, you're starting to get comfortable with it. When do you start you know, going outside of your friends group and then start getting involved in more community-based things like that? Okay, um, this was uh, about a year or two after I graduated. Uh, I had moved away from Athens because I went to UGA and it was getting harder and harder for the old group to stick together. Uh, and it was like time to find new people. Uh, and I just looked up, uh, uh, on Eventbrite, like D and D literally just searched D and D on Eventbrite. And, uh, they, we were doing, uh, the ATL D and D was not yet ATL D and D. It was literally just Bradley setting up session zero of like a, a friend group. He was trying to get started at uh, a bar and I showed up and it all went downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> so basically bradley it was kind of the impetus of creating what is now the atmd D group is that correct 
Uh, yeah. So like the way ATL D and D got its start was uh, Bradley, our our grand founder, as it were, um, sort of had this relationship with a bar called Joystick here in Atlanta, a really cool nerd bar. Um, and so he would talk them into having events occasionally. And uh, one time he decided, hey, let's get some some D and D dorks together to do a learn to play D and D event. And uh, I just happened to show up uh, at the first one, and we built on that uh, until we are who we are. And yeah, could you now, for those who don't know, kind of explain ATL D and D their mission and kind of the events they run? Go for it. Or would you like me to? Sorry. Oh yeah, sorry. I said, could you? I mean, I will. I will do my oh, best if you want me to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So ATL D and D is an event group here in Atlanta that runs uh, like D and D events outside of uh, like out of bars. So uh, on Mondays and Tuesdays, we're at Joystick uh, Game Bar, and we basically organize a bunch of stuff that happens there. Currently, we do Wednesdays and Thursdays uh, at. Uh, a bar called Noni's and another bar called uh, Bonelick Kitchen. And so we're basically just getting groups together just like as a social event. Um, it's mostly just an excuse to hang out with cool people and get drunk and pretend to be a wizard. <laughs> yeah. And I, what I think is really interesting is it does kind of solve one of the problems I find. And a lot of time in playing D&D is the schedules and finding time to game. I think especially as, because I, I think we talked about this before we went live, D&D tends to skew a little bit older. You're typically getting adults um, and, and the, they all have, you know, social lives, work lives, things like that. So getting a group together, I find is probably one of the biggest challenges for anyone playing a game. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, although the whole age thing is actually starting to change a little bit these days. Uh, it's starting to skew a little younger now. Um, but, uh, to hit on the, uh, organizational style of it. Yeah. Like, um, our, our weekday events tend to be very loosey goosey. They're not ticketed or anything. You literally just show and go. So it's extremely easy to do like pick up one shots where you just show up, you all agree. Okay. You're playing at level three for this one shot. And then you just roll. I got to ask though, because you're taking place in bars are kids open to come to these events as well, or is the bar not allowed that? So it depends on the bar itself. Uh, for example, Joystick is uh, 18 and up after like, I think it's eight. So uh, younger kids aren't really welcome to those. But uh, we do a bunch of events on the weekends that are all very kid friendly. Like um, we do an event at a brewery uh, called Hair and Back again because it's at a Red Hair Brewery. And that one is very, very like child focused. Like it's the narrative is meant for kids. That's awesome. That's good to take in, in as well. So, Chris, you're doing so much work with ATL D&D. Why, why, why did you fall in and become one of the kind of bigger uh, figures in the group? Um, I mean, I'm a, a very big and loud doof uh, to the point where I'm kind of noticeable. Um, so when we started picking up a little more steam as an event group, um, we were doing one day a week uh, for the event, and then we did two days a week, and uh, it became obvious that I'm very loud and very good at getting people's attention. So they're like, hey, Chris, do you want to host maybe a little bit? Uh, and I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. 
And uh, so I transitioned from being a big loud doof to a big loud doof who stood on chairs and told them about stuff that was going to happen in the future. So you meant the decibel requirement then? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, uh, I really know how to project. Well, there's that theater background coming back in, right? Exactly, right? So what's the scene like in Atlanta? I mean, I, I can kind of attest in regards to video games and, you know, other things like that, esports to say, like, I think Atlanta's got a great kind of nerd geek scene going on. It's a great cross section of, of uh, various different cultures. But what do you, what do you, what is your view of it? Uh, I love the nerd scene in Atlanta. We've got a really strong community. Um, like we've got stuff all over the city. Uh, we've got Dragon Con, we've got uh, MomoCon, we've got all these conventions. Um, it's a strong community, but I think it tends to be a little fragmented sometimes. Uh, and that's not through hard feelings or anything like that. It's simple geography. Uh, people who live in like North Atlanta aren't going to play a whole lot with people in like, I don't know, Decatur. Yeah, I mean, traffic, obviously, for anybody in a major city understands the difficulty of that. And a lot of these events uh, are taking place in the evening closer to the city, if I'm correct, right? Yeah, so uh, almost all of our events take place on Edgewood Avenue, which is like this really cool kind of hip, well, not hipster area, but like um, definitely sort of off the the downtown bougie kind of areas and more honest to god like people uh but yeah it's a it's definitely center atlanta and how long did it take for somebody to come idea of a pub crawl or bar crawl uh honestly that was kind of a goal from the beginning uh like bradley like when we started doing two days a week uh he was like oh wait we're, we're actually building something we should do a pub crawl and uh yeah how much do you enjoy the reaction of the locals when uh and i've seen some of the photos of these uh events they'll come in and cosplay and and makeup and sometimes horns how much do you enjoy the looks when you guys come into the next place and the locals kind of check you all out it depends on the local because <laughs> like some people are really cool about it and that's always fun where it's like damn son get it uh other people uh, especially when it tends to be our female cosplayers, uh, tend to be a little gross. So it, it depends on the crowd of the day. So me and Nikki were actually talking about this, and uh, I'll, I'll posit the same thing to you. What is it that you do either at your table or you, you kind of push for with your players to make your game more uh, inclusive and more welcoming? Um, so for me, uh, it's... Two things. Uh, one, um, I'm sure Nikki probably talked about this as well, but the red X policy where you have like a card on the table with a big X or you make an X symbol with your fingers. And basically it's this way of saying, hey, if at any point the content of this game makes you uncomfortable or if at any point the content is unacceptable for you, all you have to do is like make a little X or point at the X card or whatever. And they can essentially give a message to the DM that, hey, this is unacceptable content. Um, and that kind of environment where you know there's always a safe out makes people feel a lot more comfortable and safe in the space. Um, so that sort of adds a it, – it is a tool that assists inclusivity. Um, 
The other thing I do is I tend to be mindful of my content. Uh, I tend to run very uh, out there, improvisational, uh, at times racy uh, games, depending on uh, the people I have at my table. Um, I tend to be a lewd, crude, rude dude, as it were. But um, so when I when I do that content, uh, it's sort of like making sure, okay, how much of this is someone comfortable with and like really keeping an eye on how people are reacting to that um but also like including uh like different um gender identities sexualities and stuff like that in your uh uh npcs stuff like that um but yeah it's basically adjusting your content and making sure that content is something everyone's comfortable with and what are kind of your, some of your favorite moments or your favorite kind of success stories of bringing people into either the Atlanta D&D events or just D&D in general? So uh, I think my favorite sort of success story, as it were, uh, would be um, this one day. Uh, it wasn't during the games. It was sort of during our happy hour. We're all hanging out before the games kind of thing. Uh and I made a joke about my dream aesthetic being a gay Viking, because uh, <laughs> uh, that's just how I want to look. Um, and like more and more people chipped in, and like we all got to talking about like sort of our experiences uh, as like being gay in the nerd community. Um, and it just made for like this weird feeling of wholesomeness, like, hey, LGBTQ is very welcome here. And like, it's a safe space to talk about who you are as a person. And it was just this very wholesome feeling that day. Uh, it, it was a, it was a good, it was a good day for sure. And I would have to, you know, say and echo this kind of myself. There's so much, uh, fun you can have at, uh, at introducing anyone to any sort of game. But I, I want to ask you kind of what the sign is that you know you've got somebody hooked. Because my thing I've found a lot of times is as soon as somebody kind of has that moment to where they're like, wait, wait, so I can just kind of do anything. And you kind of look at them and go, yeah, you can do anything. Like, so if I try this, yeah, absolutely. Is it always going to win? Oh, no, hell no. But you can certainly try <laughs> and we'll see what happens. Yeah, no. Uh, for me, I think the the moment I have a player hooked is when um they do something in the game and usually my games are comedy based so uh when a player does something in a game that no one was expecting and everyone just busts out laughing like just losing their shit over whatever weird thing they did and just the feeling the like seeing the satisfaction on that player's face as they're like totally catch everyone by surprise that's that's when I know, like, okay, they're going to be back. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, theater background, I have a little small bit of theater and improv training background myself. I think a lot of that uh, comes down to what you kind of think about, about wanting to help each other enhance the scene together and kind of be working together as, as a cooperative. Because as a GMDM, obviously you're running a game, but at the same time, you want to give moments for your players to be either badass or funny or, you know, really, really, really cool so like when you are able to serve them up, you know, I'm going to use a sports ball reference here, kids, when you're able to serve them up, you know, a softball, which then they can knock out of the park, you know, everybody wins. Exactly. And like, I always, I always live for those moments when uh, my players surprise me, like they just take a hard left and I'm just like, oh, okay, okay, uh, we have to figure out what this means. 
I love those moments because they're just so like out of there. So you, a lot of your games are, you said, kind of on the fly. Well, how do you, uh, like, is there any sort of like bag of tricks or a well you kind of go back to to keep things together or coordinated? Or is it just coming down to the fact that you've been doing this for a while? Um, I think in my case, it's, uh, I just, I do a lot of improv and, um, I tend to be a little, I tend to dance on my feet a little. So like having a lot of experience in that sort of thing is, uh, the way I do it. That said for general, like use, it's really not that hard to have like just a simple set of numbers that like you can apply to anything. So you can keep a cheat sheet and improv the story around your statistics. Yeah, I guess that's a great way to kind of simplify what the kind of base need to know while still having a reference if uh, you do get lost for a moment. Um, did you ever get into any other sort of like cooperative or like open community play stuff? Because I know Adventures League is, is another sort of avenue for people who want to get into it, though. It's a little differently structured. But was that ever a thing for you? Uh, yeah. So um, I love the idea of the Adventures League. Um, I think if you are with a good community, it's a great way to like continue having a character that grows. But um, there were a couple of pitfalls uh, in the game that I played in uh, because of the way the system works um, that made AL not quite my style. What, what, if you don't mind me asking, is it that kind of doesn't work for you? Uh, yeah. So um, I had a kind of a horror story when I, when I, the AL game, uh, basically it was uh, the curse of Stroud module, which uh, if you don't know what curse of Stroud is, it's this uh, super fun sort of, vampire horror kind of vibe um and in the very first game you play you go through what's called the death house um one of our players was a dungeon master for adventures league and uh he used a lot of he like was basically playing the same module over and over again for uh dm rewards that the al system allows you to get uh as a dm and so he was being a player. And so at level one, he had like a plus one longbow and a cloak of elven kind. And he would just go to a room and draw his longbow and be like, I wait for something to happen because he already knew something was going to happen. So while I think if you have a great community, AL can be a wonderful system. But uh, if uh, there are certain mechanics in AL that don't necessarily encourage but allow for um essentially the equivalent of grinding in video games uh which can ruin the fun for other players yeah i got it so very much you you didn't kind of like that feeling of you know railroads and min maxing and numbers and crunching and all that stuff exactly and there is don't get me wrong there's nothing wrong with that way of playing dnd like it's it's what you find fun. Um, so, like, there's nothing wrong with playing that way. It's just I am partial to more the storytelling and improv of the game rather than the number side. Yeah, got it. No problem. Well, uh, is there anything in the 
other RPGs that, that you're interested in that you're playing or is kind of D&D your main jam? And I ask because D&D has obviously got the vast market share and it's the you know catchy name that everybody knows from Stranger Things and whatnot. But are you interested in any of the RPG systems by chance? Uh, yeah. So um, I'm, I'm a D&D boy through and through. Uh, but one of the people that comes to our events as a DM or game master in this case uh, he, he specializes in what I like to call avant-garde bullshit. Um, <laughs> okay. You gotta like, explain that. So, so he's always trying to do the hottest new system at our events and it always goes great. He is a amazing, an amazing, uh, dungeon master. He's incredibly smart. He's incredibly uh, good at improv. Uh, so he always brings in stuff like, uh, lasers and feelings, which is a lot of fun. Um, there's one, which I think it's called the tower of dread where, uh, it's a, a role-playing game, but to determine whether you succeed or fail, you're pulling, uh, blocks out of a Jenga tower. Uh, so I, I love testing new systems and playing stuff like that with him. Um, but I would say, uh, personally, I, I, I tend to stick to D and D. And there's no, no problem with that. I mean, whatever your jam is and whatever you enjoy, ultimately, like we mentioned a bit earlier, at the end of the day, it's all about having fun. Exactly. So I need to ask now, uh, this is kind of the thing that that's not going to be kind of, I, I think I know what your answer is going to be here, but um, when you're doing an adventure yourself as a player, or as a character, how much do you want to be involved in talking with the DM as to like your backstory and kind of changing hopefully the campaign to go uh towards something to where you can kind of have your arc resolved or how much do you want the dm to kind of surprise you and come in with completely new things you're not prepared for i think um i tend to be very loosey-goosey with my characters uh i love it getting curveball th curveballs thrown at my character um but uh, I think it's it's a question of setting your your hard and soft limits of what you deem acceptable uh, to happen to this character, much in the same way that you do X cards. Um, like, for example, uh, there's a campaign I play in in which I am Alaria von Kuderschmidt. I am an eight-year-old girl. I am adorable. It's a lot of fun. Uh, there are certain things that I would never be comfortable uh having happened to this character uh sort of like you know the obvious stuff like pedophilia and stuff like that like that is something i could never uh be comfortable with having um like that kind of story being told uh it's just not mm, gross uh so it's it's a question of just with my dm um saying hey this is as she he is a character in your play, as it were, but here's what I will not allow happen just narratively. Yeah, I, I definitely see what, what you mean by that, and especially when you're playing a certain type of character like that. I think there's something very um, uh, impaired in, 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 in uh, what's the English I'm looking for? I think it's necessary. I'm just going to use the word necessary. I think there's something that very, very necessary when uh, either being a DM or a player character to when you introduce a child because like i mentioned a little uh, again like we, we do tend to skew older and i do notice in the vast majority of my games people do play uh adults or fully grown uh you know elves dwarves whatever it is but when you play a child as much as we all like our comedy and stuff like that there still has to be that hard limit because you are still playing a child 
Exactly. Um, it is it is an interesting way to tell a story to like try and put yourself into a uh, the viewpoint of someone young, but uh, it definitely can limit the the kind of tell with that character, and it needs to be that way. Yeah. Um, I also say I do like the fact that you're taking the opportunity to play somebody outside your gender and outside your age range. Because that's something I think a lot of people uh, could benefit from even just doing once. I know uh, it, this game is very much you know about having fun and it's a bit about a power fantasy and going out there and being able to do this perfect idolized versions of ourselves. But trying to play a game from another perspective I think is uh, not only just enhances the gaming experience, I think it enhances us as people as well. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's easy for you to relate to because you theater and you're used to embodying other people's shoes, right? Oh yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, I think it's a, a great exercise in. Uh, I want to say empathy. Is empathy the right word? No, empathy. Yeah, it's your ability to yeah. feel what I feel and understand. Yeah, it. um, it, it's a great exercise in looking at viewpoints or trying to understand viewpoints that are not necessarily your own, and to uh, be a different person, as it were. Um, so like my, my whole, as a player, my whole goal is every time I play, I try to play the polar opposite of what are, what I played last. So like if I was a Larry Von Kirschmidt this time, I might be like a big old Minotaur monk next time where it's like, me, I'm gob, me want to punch, but also is punching always right thing? Gob do not know. Like it's, it's trying to find the, like the next interesting thing. Yeah, definitely. And also, uh, it lets you live, I think, a, a new experience because having one of my players in my Monday game currently uh, play a female, and we actually started the game as a magic school, you know, Harry Potter-esque themed. So having her play a female starting at, I think, 12 or 13, and then go through five years of university, uh, not university, I guess, magic school, five years of magic school and having to go through like, well, a 13-year-old girl is going through this you know, kind of important change as we all are when we're in our teenage years. And then she's interacting with how does she feel about boys and girls and dwarves and goblins and dragons? And how does she feel, you know, like, so to see all of our guys kind of have to do the same thing, of course, reliving their youth, but then especially to see my player James having to play a female and kind of be outside of of, um, himself was really interesting as as well. And we did come into a, a couple of great insights about like power dynamics and how, Life is way different for a female, even in a fantasy setting, when it comes to their interactions with the world. Yeah, it's um, sort of the 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 teenage years. If my character ever makes it uh, to that, will be very interesting because uh, I was an awkward ass kid when I was uh, in hitting my puberty. Uh, so navigating that will be very uh, interesting. I'm gonna be honest, difficult for me. Uh, really gonna hash up some some embarrassing memories. Yeah, that's actually something the vast majority, and even me as the GM, felt during that kind of beginning of that magic school game is having all these moments about like the school dance and like wanting to invite somebody out, and they picked somebody else, and like all of us having this collective sort of like, oh god, my feelings, I, I'm back there again. I remember this. Oh, like ha- having that collective cringe or that collective nostalgia trip uh, is is really really uh, 
yeah no it's it's very it's very real it's very interesting but then at the same time we we, we laughed about this because uh, they got out of university with debt because that's what you do you go to school and get student loans we, 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 <laughs> we, we kind of laughed about it after the fact about like yeah you know we go to fantasy worlds to escape this so why are we dealing with like paying for rent and student loans and seeing if our degree got us anywhere why are we doing this to ourselves no god oh uh, games like that always like they can be exhausting because you're feeling just a little too much, but it's always like super enriching and satisfying. Uh, it's the best and the worst at the same time. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, so you love your comedy games. You love uh, playing outside your uh, character. You love obviously being kind of loosey goosey. What are some kind of hard like no no's either to obviously the type of character scenarios or maybe just the rules. It's like, well, how's your, what do you do to kind of distinguish your table? What are some things you don't allow or you don't like or advise against? Okay. I mean, there's some fairly obvious ones. Uh, like the, I will never run any content about rape, um, uh, stuff like uh, race. Uh, I do use race issues uh, in some of my more serious games. Uh, and it's always the villain, hint, hint, who tends to be the racist. Uh, it's a, it's a good way of knowing who the bad guy is in my games. Um, but, uh, the, the hard limits tend to be, um, denying who people are. Um, so for example, uh, I do run, uh, sexual content in my games, uh, sometimes like, cause I'm playing with adults and adults like to bone sometimes. Um, but, uh, it's totally fine to engage, like, you go to the, uh, bard at the bar, making the moves, all that, but it always needs to come from a place of, uh, acceptance and especially consent. Um, it always needs to be sort of, like, respecting the identities of those people, so, like, I occasionally, um like use LGBT characters and if they those characters uh uh for example um I had a a a gay uh sort of bartender kind of guy who like had a beautiful husband like it was this uh bar called the Baronauter Inn it was very funny but um I don't think one of my players one time kind of picked up on the fact that they were uh partners and was making the moves on uh Terry the bear uh and he's like no i i uh i don't really go for your type and uh she sort of tried to make herself his type and it led to a lot of problematic stuff um so that kind of got xed out and you have to sort of steer away from that kind of content in that case and so it's it's about um, coming from a positive place when when you run race here. Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, care. That... Sorry, one second. Well, my fridge makes a weird noise. Okay, there we go. We'll try again. Three, two. I think there's a lot of care and uh, a lot of. Um, uh caution that needs to be taken when uh any sort of uh dm wants to uh, he or she or they 
decide uh, to run anything that's kind of um, po po politically or um, you know socially uh, sensitive. Uh, I think you know race is one of the ones that is is, is a funny one for me because. What's interesting about the D&D world and obviously D&D world heavily inspired by Tolkien and uh, the Lord of the Rings series is that so much is uh, tied around race, dwarven ruins, elven ruins, dwarves feel this way about, you know, dragonborn and this way about orcs. And there's certain races that are bad guys and certain races that tend to be good guys. And there's something inherently uh, unavoidable about the world in which the series is set up and the... Um, content is set up and yet at the same time you know i never want to create a table to where somebody comes to me and feels like oh well i happen to pick the race that's the lesser race or the race that's the bad race so now i'm gonna get shit on especially if that person has to be a minority outside of their player character i mean if you're a female or you're african-american or hispanic-american coming and you happen to play you know half work and people go oh your kind is you know brutal and animalistic and stuff like that like well, that might be something they've probably had to deal with very real in their personal lives. So they would never want to deal with that. So it's something you need to be conscious of as well, what you're sending, even if it's already like, oh, well, it's, you know, based in the books and all these, you know, stories and, uh, you know, all this canon still you have to be considerate of that. Yeah. Um, personally, I think uh, like when you're using issues of race uh, in D&D, &D, um, I think it can be an extremely useful mechanic to tell a very uh, interesting story and also sort of shine a light on who we are as people and the values we're trying to uphold uh, both in our lives and in the game. Um, but if you're going to cover get, like issues of race, that's something you have to clear like with your players ahead of time. Like this is uh, the story I want to tell. Uh, how can I make this a better game for you? It, would this make you uncomfortable um, if we cover a, a very serious topic like this in-game? So Chris, in the beginning, you kind of mentioned the Renaissance and like kind of now the second wave of the golden age of RPGs and uh, tabletop content and stuff like that. Uh, part of you know that release of 5e is now the introduction of twitch and youtube and all sorts of streaming platforms to where you can either have you know tips and tricks or intros or even full-fledged rpg campaigns being streamed are you privy to any of this do you watch any of this uh yeah so i i watch a lot of the that like most people do uh i'm i'm a big fan of the adventure zone and critical role and stuff like that um so um, when it comes to sort of the, the, I would call it the Silver Age of I guess, um, honestly, I think to a certain extent, uh, 5e was the revival point. And then um, because it's such a creatively rewarding game, a lot of creators tend to play it. So like we've got people like Dan Harmon and like the Critical Role cast who are all um, voice actors or show workers. and and so like it, the the fun of the game sort of led to creators enjoying the game, and then those creators tend to work it into their work. So, like of course, referring to Stranger Things and Dan Harmon doing uh, an online stream called Harmon Quest, but also like sneaking it into Rick and Morty and stuff like that. Um, I think Five uh, E was the beginning point in a lot of ways. 
and you're enjoying this as a you said a weird nerdy kid growing up oh yeah love it um there's definitely something uh to to the the sentiment um that like oh i i i was a nerd back when it wasn't cool and now people are trying to bandwagon onto it and like to a certain extent we all have those feelings but uh when you look at that at the end of the day it's just gatekeeping it's it's uh trying to keep people out of a hobby they want to get into for essentially emotional reasons on your half it's it's i find that sentiment to be kind of negative personally speaking i i'm a not a big fan of gatekeeping yeah, and I mean, I've had people with varying opinions on that. I think no one is uh, obviously wanting to prevent you from having a good time if you're trying to get into an RPG. And I've seen people on the other side make the point, uh, and which I think we all as nerds have, which is this idea of like, well, what we love, we think is pure and sacred. And we hate the idea of like, if either, you know, the conventionally attractive or hot or smart or, you know, except commercially acceptable people who kind of shunned us or poo-pooed us or didn't like us when we were, you know, teenagers. Now all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I'm totally into this or I'm interested into that. Like there's a little feeling of like disingenuousness, which I think people, it's, it's this weird sort of tribal human instinct. But on the flip side of that, the very nature of this game, you have to be collaborative. You have to be cooperative. You know, a, a GM who just shows up and he gives he or she or they gives their uh, players a hard time will not have that game run more than one session at most because you're not getting anyone you know uh, an experience that they want to go to and that's antithetical to the entire experience so it almost seems weird when people are gatekeepers and obviously there's also the other thing about this weird thing that we hear about obviously and also when it comes to economics as well about like well i suffered and i went through a difficult time you shouldn't have things easier when i was your age i got beat up for having a player's handbook and nowadays everybody's having a good old time on their D beyond apps you know you kids but it's it's, it's a weird it's it's weird sort of perspective to come from because again if the entirety of this uh, game persists because it, people work together why would you not want more people to be happy and work together exactly it's it's um it's sort of a uh frankly a little vindictive uh sentiment to me in a lot of ways where like don't get me wrong totally understand it uh where it's like you were that weird kid in middle school who watched too much full metal alchemist and you drew the pentagram on your hand and you you suffered for it when you were younger and so like there's this sentiment that like you made me suffer for this lot like once upon a time and now you're just trying to hop on. I understand that sentiment. I really do. It's a bad sentiment. It's it's being vindictive now that times have changed. It's it's you are keeping the gate. You are trying to prevent other people from having a good time. Uh understand it. Still not a great thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think in time, like all things, um, once it kind of swallows everything and everybody up, it stops becoming a thing you think about. Like I love how just general, you know, geek, nerdy video games, you know, superhero films, comic books, all that stuff has now gotten to the point where it's hit such a saturation that you just assume everybody's going to watch The Avengers. You just assume everybody's going to play video games. And pretty soon, I think you're just going to assume everybody's played an RPG or has a D&D character that they want to tell you about. So you can't even get to the point about being like, oh, I, I don't remember when this was just not a thing. Yeah, exactly. And here's hoping. Fingers crossed. 
Well, Chris, I appreciate you coming on to the podcast. If there's anything you want to promote or any sort of social media you want to throw out there, this is your opportunity. How do the people get to contact you? Sure. So the easiest way to contact me is uh, I'm one of the hosts for ATL D&D's events. You can find out about all the stuff ATL D&D does. If you go to uh, Facebook, uh, we have a Facebook page, ATL D&D. Uh, we also have a website, ATLDND.com, uh, ATLD, the letter N, D.com. Uh, we have Instagram, ATLDND, once again. Uh, look us up. Uh, you can usually see a, a big weird dude with way too colorful hair uh, in some of the pictures, and you'll find me at our events. Yeah, and I, I have to hearken back to my earlier point that ATLD is a great resource. If you're ever in the Atlanta metro area, please check it out. I know you're RPG fans because you're listening to this podcast. So I definitely think it's going to be right up your alley. And for those of you, I appreciate you listening. Uh, obviously, this is my RPG podcast. You can find it on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other forums where you can find podcasts. If you have any questions, inquiries, or want to get on the show, you can email me at myrpgpodcast at gmail.com. Dot com. My Twitter is classy underscore Don. That's D-O-N. Otherwise, thank you for listening, and I'll see you at the table. <laughs>